It is a real pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, We are going to be continuing our study in the book of John. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been walking through the book of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, since the beginning of this year. If you're new to the Bible, uh, John is the fourth book in what we call the New Testament, which uh, starts about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. The book is written by one of John's, excuse me, one of Jesus's closest uh, and truest disciples, and it's written to show us who Jesus was. It's written to show us what Jesus had come to do. To quote from the book, it's written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Today, we're going to focus on the end of John chapter 6, verses 60 to 61. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. John chapter 6, verse 60. It's on page 892 of the Bibles in the rows there. If you don't have a Bible, flag someone down. They'll pass one to you. And we're going to pick up our story today right where we left it last week. We are on the verge of a massive shift in the way that people think about Jesus. We are on the verge of a massive shift in the way that people view Jesus. Because let's be honest, he has said some remarkable things in his ministry. He has said, I am the Son of God who has come down from heaven. He has said things like, the only way to eternal life is by believing in me. And those are the kind of things that demand a response. I mean, imagine sitting in a church building with a guy you grew up with, whose family you knew. Maybe you went over to his house for dinner, and he says something like, I am God, and to go to heaven, you have to believe in me. I mean, that's the kind of thing you just can't let go. It demands a response because if it's not true, then it's blasphemous. And so today, our passage tells us about how people respond to the teaching of Jesus how they respond to who he says he is, how they respond to what he claims he has come to do. Now, before we get into those responses, let me just remind you that our passage today follows a really familiar scene for many of us. Jesus has just fed thousands and thousands of people through a miracle. He's taken a few loaves and a few fishes and fed thousands of people But as we know from our study of John thus far, miracles are hardly ever just a display of power. They're meant to show us something about who Jesus is or what he has come to do. And in this case, Jesus explains it to us. It's one of those moments in Scripture when he lays it on the line for us. He says, what we are supposed to see from this miracle is that our biggest problem isn't what we thought it was. Our biggest problem is is that we are going to die. And believing in Jesus is the only way that you can avoid it. And so today's story in John chapter 6 is one of two very different responses to what Jesus was teaching about himself. It's where the rubber meets the road for people. It's decision day. Either you're going to commit to follow Jesus, or it's time to go. And on the one hand, we are going to see Huge numbers of people leave Jesus because of what he said. But on the other hand, we're going to see a statement of remarkable faith that I think is going to change the way you look at faith. 
And so, as we consider each of these two responses to Jesus, those who turn away and don't follow Jesus, and those who felt like they had nowhere else to go but to follow Jesus, we're going to gain some insight into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And specifically, we're going to say three things. We're going to say that followers of Jesus believe that death is their biggest problem. We're going to say that followers of Jesus believe that Jesus can solve their problem of death. And that followers of Jesus believe that only Jesus can solve their problem of death. So now, we're going to read from John chapter 6. If you'll please stand in honor of God's word. We're going to start in verse 60 and go all the way through verse 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if he were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we were reading, I wonder if you caught the two responses. Let's first just let me show you where they are. The first is of those who abandon Jesus, and the section is between verses 60 all the way to verse 65. It starts with them grumbling about what Jesus has been talking about. They say in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, describing that same group of people, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They abandoned him. Right after that, we see the other response. We see those who remain and stay followers of Jesus. They're described in verses 68 and 69 when it says, Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we have two responses, one of abandonment and one of staying with Jesus. But before we really consider each of those responses, I think we should spend a few minutes reminding ourselves what Jesus had said that caused such a mass defection. What did he say that caused such a turning point in the way that people were looking at him? Now, I'll tell you that Matt has been preaching on this for the last two weeks. So we're only going to deal with it briefly today. I'll point you to the website for the sermon audio if you want to learn a little bit more about it. Verse 40 in chapter 6 is really the central teaching of what Jesus has been saying. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is teaching that the biggest problem that people face is death. 
Now, in case the connection between what I just read, that all those who look on Jesus should have eternal life, and what I just said, that the biggest problem for humanity is death, in case that connection isn't quite clear, let me walk you through it. The main idea here is that death owns us. Death is always the last word. Death always takes away the best things in life. Death means we have no hope of anything better and that we're always moving towards something worse. And this has been a problem that has plagued humanity from every generation since the beginning. And it will be present until Jesus comes again. It started in the garden When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they disobeyed what God had told them to do. And ever since that time, humanity has been living under a death sentence. The sin of disobedience that separated Adam and Eve from God is the same sin that separates us from God. It's the same sin that condemns us to death. And generation after generation, the refrain of death comes again. Nothing stops it. Nothing interrupts it. Humanity's biggest problem is that the only sure thing in life is death. Until now. What Jesus is promising here is that believing in him will free us from our death sentence. It's not that we won't die. It's that he will raise us to eternal life. Death is no longer the last Word when we believe in Jesus. There's something beyond the horizon of death, and that is eternal life. Jesus says, when you believe in me, your problem of death goes away. When you believe in me, you can have eternal life. We'll say a little bit more about what he means by that later, but don't you want that to be true? Oh, that death would not have the final word, that there'd be something more than the suffering in this world. There'd be something more than my weakness to rely on. Lord, let it be true that you have loved me enough to send your own son to die for me so that I might live. So that death would no longer own me. Don't you want that to be true? So why? Why, why when people hear the word of truth, does it cause them to turn away from Jesus? It's not because they didn't understand it. Read verse 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, the teaching about eternal life, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The word hard there doesn't mean difficult to understand. It means offensive. The word is scleros, like a grating of the mind, or like nails on a chalkboard. The words of Jesus are like nails on a chalkboard to some of these people. See, in verse 61, he asks them a question like only Jesus can because he already knows the answer. He says, do you take offense at this? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. I think that's what we have to understand about our text today. Why do people reject Jesus when they hear the words of life? What is it that's so offensive to them about the words of eternal life that they would turn back from Jesus? And I'll tell you, 
by understanding what it is that offends people about Jesus and causes them to turn away, we're going to learn what it looks like to be followers of Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you the punchline. So wake back up. You can go to sleep right after this. This is it, okay? People turn back from Jesus because they are blinded by their own perception of their immediate need and either think that death isn't their biggest problem or that Jesus isn't the solution. People turn back because they're blinded by their own perspective of their immediate need and think that either death isn't their problem or Jesus isn't the solution. And that tells us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe that death is your biggest problem and you have to believe that Jesus is the only solution to it. So let's set the scene. Remember, Jesus has just fed thousands and thousands of people with a few loaves and a few fish. People have seen the power of God incarnate who could make something out of a word. And in verse 14, we see their response of chapter 6. It says, When people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king. Can you imagine the frenzy of enthusiasm? People talking to one another. Can you believe it? A new hero from God has come. A king sent to solve all of our problems. And now we fast forward just a few verses. And those very same people who want to make Jesus king turn back and instead of following him as their king, they abandon him. What happened? I think it's that people were unwilling to accept Jesus on Jesus' terms. They wanted something he wasn't offering. And they were unwilling to accept the thing that he was offering. He was offering eternal life. And they couldn't see that they needed it. They wanted something else. It's hard to say exactly what it would have been that they wanted. It was probably different for different people. But if we look through chapter 6, we see some clues about what they might have wanted instead of eternal life. In verse 26, we get our first clue. It says, Jesus is sort of calling them out on this one. He says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You only came to me because I fed you. I've got to tell you, I don't really blame them for that. I think they were probably hungry. I think they were probably hungry a lot and that they were suffering and they didn't have enough to eat. And so someone comes who feeds them from heaven, of course they want more. But what Jesus says to them is, that's not what I'm offering. I'm not here to solve your problem of hunger. I'm here to solve your problem of death. And that's offensive to them because Jesus thinks he knows what they need better than they do. Who is this guy? He's not saying they didn't have a problem with hunger. He's saying it wasn't their biggest problem. I think some of them probably wanted political power. We read it just a second ago in verses 14 and 15. They wanted to make Jesus king. These people were tired of being oppressed by the Romans and they see someone who can make 
something out of nothing? Free us from our political oppression. Give us a military victory. I don't think we can blame them for that either. They were probably tired of it. But Jesus says, that is not what I'm offering. I'm here not to solve your problem of political oppression. I'm here to solve your problem of death. That was offensive to them. I think some people wanted power. What can you do for me, Jesus? I'm only going to keep coming to this party if you keep performing those miracles. We see in verse 30 of chapter 6, it says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What sign may you do that we may see and believe you? You just fed 5,000 people from three loaves of bread. Jesus says, That's not what I'm offering. I'm not here to keep giving you what you think you want. I'm here to solve your problem of death. Jesus says, you don't know what you really need. And that is offensive. The other thing is not only did they not want what he was offering, but they didn't think he could do it. They were unwilling to think that this guy they grew up with was greater than Moses, that he was uniquely sent by God and authorized to give life. They just couldn't imagine that this guy, Jesus, could solve the problem of death, even if it was their biggest problem. Verse 42 in chapter 6 says, They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come from heaven? This guy? The thing that holds these principles together the common element between wanting material provision and power for themselves and a political victory and not wanting to believe that Jesus could do it, the thing that holds that together comes to us in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What I want you to hear is they turned back to what they had left behind. We lose a little bit of it in the translation. They turned from Jesus to something else. They turned to something they couldn't let go. Something that was blinding them to what they actually needed. There was something that they valued more than what Jesus was offering them. Those who are taken up with material things, with fleshly things, with temporal things, with money and power and status and self-advancement, those people hear Jesus' teaching like nails on a chalkboard. It offends them, and they turn away. People turned away from Jesus because they did not believe their biggest problem was death, and they didn't believe that Jesus could solve it. And so there's the first point. Followers of Jesus have to believe that their biggest problem is death. Followers of Jesus have to believe that their biggest problem is death. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from this passage is that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe what he says about himself. You have to believe what he says about himself. Well, I think that may sound like a simple statement. There's a raging debate in Protestant circles about that. Should we look at Jesus as an example of how to live morally? Should we only accept part of what he says because we just can't understand it all? Or should we believe that he is the Son of God and that faith in him is the only way to eternal life? This passage shows us that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe what he says about himself. 
And in case it isn't quite clear, let me connect the dots one more time. People flock to Jesus because of his miracle. And then they hear what he has to say about himself, and it offends them. The thing that he has to say about himself is the thing that offends him, and they turn away, they abandon him, they leave him to follow the thing that they had left behind. So we learn that it's really about believing what Jesus has to say about himself that defines the true disciples of Jesus. People who don't believe what Jesus said, they follow their own path. People who believe that Jesus is the bread of life and that when you believe in him, you can have eternal life, they follow Jesus. Maybe another way to say this is, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to come to him on his terms and not your terms. To be a follower of Jesus, you have to come to him on his terms, not on your own. I tell you, I think one of the main implications for us here is about evangelism. How do we talk to people about who Jesus is and what he came to do? I'll tell you the implication is this. If we're not talking to people about Jesus on Jesus' terms, then we're letting them down. If we're not saying to people, your biggest problem is death and the only solution is Jesus, then we're letting them down. We can't just emphasize the miracle of bread without also saying that Jesus is the bread of life. I'll tell you... um, Something happened to me this week. I got evangelized. And it was awesome. (laughs) Some man who I did not know came up to me and started talking to me about Jesus. He didn't know anything that I believed. He didn't know who I was or what I thought. And he just started talking to me about his faith in Jesus. Now, when I told him I was an elder at a Baptist church, it kind of changed the nature of our conversation pretty quickly. But I'll tell you what struck me about his approach. He handed me this pamphlet here. It says, How to be prosperous and successful in 2014. And then on the back, it quotes a Bible verse. It says, Do this, then you will be prosperous and successful. What strikes me about that is that he asked me if I would be prosperous. I think he fell prey to the thing that we all have a tendency to do. He was promising me prosperity if I believed in Jesus. He wasn't telling me that my biggest problem was death. He was putting a more immediate need in front of me, try to get me identify with it, and then believe in Jesus. So even today, we're tempted to the things that the people of John 6 are. Jesus, I'm hungry. Feed me. Do you want to believe in Jesus? He'll feed you. Jesus, I'm oppressed. Free me. Do you want to believe in Jesus? He'll free you from your oppression. Jesus, I need power and you are powerful. Are you feeling weak? Jesus will give you everything you need to be successful and prosperous. And I think the call of this passage is that when we talk about Jesus, we have to encourage people to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. We have to help people see that their biggest problem is death and we have to help people see that Jesus is the only way to fix that. We don't want to pull any punches. We don't want to sell a pop, glitzy Jesus. We don't want to get people in the door and spring the real Jesus on them once they've got here. We need to stay true to the message of Jesus, to the words that he said about himself. Because those are the real problems that people face. Now, I'm not saying don't talk about the other things. I'm saying you have to talk 
about this. Why? Because following Jesus means believing his words. Following Jesus means believing his words on his terms. And if we don't tell people what those terms are, how can we ever hope that they will really become followers of Jesus? Now, for the rest of our time, I want to switch and look at the other response. We've said that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe that Jesus is your biggest problem, or that death is your biggest problem and that Jesus is the way to solve it. And now I want to say that Jesus is the only way to solve it. Look to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They abandoned him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, this is a remarkable statement of faith. I want to break it down for you. It starts out with a confession that Jesus is Lord. Look how he addresses him. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And then he calls him the Holy One of God. Jesus asks these 12 people who have been following him most closely, are you leaving too? And Peter, who's acting as the spokesperson, says, Jesus, you are God. And then he says, we have believed and come to know. He says, we have faith that you are God. Do you already see the difference between the folks who abandoned him and what Peter is saying here? We have faith that you are God. And then he says this, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? It's impossible for us to go anywhere else because only you have the keys to eternal life. Only you can solve our real problem of death. We can't turn back. There's nothing for us there. You are God and you are eternal life. What Peter's doing here is he's making a statement of relative value. He's putting in the scales of his mind, on the one hand, eternal life. And on the other hand, all of those competing priorities that they may have valued more. And whereas the masses of people feel like the competing priorities are more important, Peter's saying, no, eternal life is the most important thing. Maybe we should take a few examples to illustrate the point. The first one I want to talk about are relationships. I think there is a real tendency for us to value interpersonal and romantic relationships in a way that tips the scales away from eternal life. Our judgment gets clouded by the here and the now, and we lose sight of eternity. Let me paint what I think will be a familiar picture for many of us. I had a friend in college who had been through a series of bad relationships, and she finally found the guy. He was funny. They liked the same things. She would say things like, he gets me. He treats me like I want to be treated. He treats me like I deserve to be treated. I wouldn't know much about this one. She said things like, he's smoking hot. Whatever that means. There was only really one problem. That was that he didn't believe in Jesus. He started to ask her to compromise her belief about who Jesus was. And I think worse, he started to ask her to doubt who Jesus was. And I tell you, I'm sure we all have a similar scenario in our mind. 
Because I've felt it myself. I've seen it time and time again that people feel the pull to turn aside from following Jesus to satisfy their immediate emotional desire. And I think the problem in those instances is that we lose sight of our value of eternal life. We lose sight of the fact that our biggest problem isn't emotional fulfillment. Our biggest problem is sin and death. The only solution for our problem is Jesus. And so anything that takes us away from following Jesus doesn't actually solve our problem. It makes us worse off. I think we have to ask ourselves in those moments when those decisions confront us, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. What is more important to me? Eternal life or the immediate emotional need that I'm satisfying in this relationship? Another example came up for me personally as I was preparing this sermon. I um, have been preparing a pretty big grant at work. It uh, is going to go into the National Institutes of Health tomorrow. Uh, it's, I've probably spent 120 hours of work on it in the last six months. And if I get it, my salary will be supported for five years. And I've got to tell you, the best thing that could have happened to me was thinking about eternal life while I was writing that grant. Because I haven't felt the anxiety of self-advancement or the pressure to be successful at work to make me feel valuable. Instead, I've been grounded in the teaching of Jesus that my biggest problem is death. And I have that met need in Jesus. So everything else, while important, just isn't quite as important. You know, many times in my work, in the past, I've been distracted by the immediacy of providing for my family or by the immediacy of wanting to be thought of as successful. I guess I thought those were my most important needs at the time, and that sort of present nature of the need gives me tunnel vision. I can't see past the tunnel to the horizon where eternal life is shining brightly, and that makes me anxious. That makes me stressed. I think the apparent urgency of those needs sometimes causes me to judge their weight incorrectly, and I act like eternal life isn't my most important need. So for me, in the last month or so, really seeing eternal life for what it is, really seeing that it's my biggest need, and really seeing that by faith in Jesus I've had it taken care of, that has freed me from the anxiety and the stress of needing to be successful or thought of well by other people. Now, Before we go any further, I think it would be worth us taking a moment to consider what Jesus means when he talks about eternal life. It's kind of an abstract concept, I think. Death, I get. Death, I have seen. Death, I know. But eternal life, I've only tasted. Eternal life is an abstract concept because it's not here yet. We can't get our minds fully around it, and so I think it's worth our time to think about it some. Simply put, eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus forever. I'm taking from John, the book of John, chapter 17, that we'll get to a little later this year. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus forever. Being in God's presence for eternity, worshiping forever. It's all the beauty and joy of this life with none of the sadness None of the ending to it. You know, one of the things about joy in this world is that it's temporary. 
Death and time always steal our joy. But the joy in this world is a faint foreshadowing of the eternal joy that we will come to know when we know our God fully and forever. So as we meditate on this idea together today, I'm going to be a little more right-brained than I usually am. I'm not going to give you a theological discourse on eternal life. If you want that, come over to my house for lunch. We'll talk about it. But what I want to do is read you some quotations. What I love about them is that they use images of what it looks like to know God. Both of them actually use the image of the fountain for when you're listening. And then they make the shift of what does it look like to know God and what does it look like to know him forever. The first is from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He writes, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. What a beautiful image of knowing God. To jump into the fountain of joy and power and peace and eternal life. And now Lewis says this, Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Eternal life is jumping into the fountain of joy and power and peace that comes from knowing God, and it's like swimming in that fountain forever. Jonathan Edwards writes this. The fountain that supplies joy and delight, which the soul has in seeing God, is infinite. The mind may discover more and more of the beauty and loveliness of God, but it will never exhaust the fountain. We can never, by soaring and ascending, come to the height of the love of God. We can never, by descending, come to the depth of it, or by measuring, know the length and breadth of it. Let your thoughts and desires extend themselves as they will. Here is space enough for them in which they may expand forever. How blessed, therefore, are they that do see God who have come to this exhaustless fountain. After they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. Eternal life is the infinite joy of knowing God and Jesus forever. And while some people responded to that by turning away from Jesus, Peter sees it clearly. He says, Anywhere else I could have turned would have led me away from eternal life. So when Jesus asks him, are you leaving too? Peter says, where else can we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. I think there are many things that cloud our judgment as we turn to... um, I think there are many things that in our cloudy judgment we turn to, right, that seem to outweigh the value of eternal life in our time-bounded horizon, right? We turn to material things, sure, like money, power, relationships, fill in the blank. Those things cloud our judgment about what's most important. We also turn to things like other ways of looking at the world, like trying to find a way to justify suffering. We're trying to find a way to justify that some people are saved and others aren't. Or another philosophy that seems more attractive for some reason. Or another view of sin. Or another view of grace. And whether you are currently a follower of Jesus or whether you are considering whether you want to follow him, the teaching of our text is this. The only metric that you should use to consider faith in Jesus is that he is the only solution to your problem of death. The only metric that you should use to consider following Jesus is that faith in Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And I'll tell you, you don't have to have everything else figured out to know that. You don't have to have all the answers to your questions of Christianity settled before you believe in Jesus. You don't have to stop wrestling with the truth that you don't understand before you believe in Jesus. You don't have to think Christianity is easy. You don't have to like everything about Christianity before you believe in Jesus. Jesus may still confuse you. Jesus might still offend you. But the only thing, the only thing that matters is Jesus is the bread of life. And by believing in him, you will have eternal life. So if you are considering Jesus this morning, I would ask you to look at that standard and that standard only as the way of whether you should judge if you believe. Look at other religions. Look at other philosophies, other views of God, other ways to salvation. All of them will fall short of this one promise from John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day and nothing is more important than that. So I think the question for us this morning is how do we get it? How do we get it? We don't have enough time to dive into that answer fully. But the answer is pretty clear from this text, from the passage we read before in Ephesians. You can't earn it. You just can't. The only way to get this kind of security and the promise that your problem of death has been solved and that you can have eternal life is to ask God for it. It is a gift that he freely gives to you. And when you ask through the work of the Holy Spirit and because of the sacrifice of Jesus who died for you, you too can become a child of God and an heir to the promise of eternal life.
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, as we respond to God's word this morning, we're going to do it a little differently. I'm going to ask Dave and the worship team to come on up now. We are going to spend some time praying. I'll pray for us. But then I want to give you a minute to respond silently to God's word this morning. Don't worry about the time. We'll keep it right here. We'll give you 60 seconds. It'll seem like a long time. But I want you to ask this question. How do the words of Jesus strike you? Do you hear the joy that Peter says? Lord, we have seen and believed and you have the words of eternal life. Do you hear nails on a chalkboard? I want you to be honest with yourself and be honest with God. And the question I want you to ask when you realize that you're hearing nails on a chalkboard, that you're offended by the teaching of Jesus, is where else can I go? So let me pray for us and we'll take a minute to consider it. Heavenly Father, you are the Holy One of God. You are the bread of life. And when we believe in you, you promise that we will never go hungry again. When we believe in you, you promise that we will never thirst. Oh, Lord, help us to believe it. God, our minds are weak. Our hearts are weak. We are so often tempted by the immediate needs in our lives. Would you, God, give us a clear vision of eternal life that we might follow you? God, help us to do it.